Tonight on Talking Politics, AG candidate Quentin Palfrey joins me on his run and why he's so passionate about keeping outside money out of that race. But first, when it comes to the political realm, Massachusetts residents have long viewed this state as an example for others to follow, lauding its role in revolution, abolition, and the fight for same-sex marriage, and often echoing a line from John Winthrop that was quoted by President-elect John F. Kennedy in 1961. We shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. But while that's an inspiring way of looking at ourselves, it's also incomplete. As a new book, The Politics of Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Reputation Meets Reality, makes abundantly clear. I'm joined now by the book's editors, both of whom also contributed essays. Aaron O'Brien, an associate professor of political science at UMass Boston, and Gerald Duquette, an associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. Good to see you both. Uh, which one here. of you gets credit for coming up with the idea to do this particular book at this particular moment in time? <laughs> I think I there's plenty of credit effort. to go around. The, uh, the idea of the book is, is decades old, actually, uh, and it was not possible to accomplish until there was a, a mass politics profs to really put it together. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I think there's plenty of credit to go around there. Aaron, I think you were going to share the credit as well, but I, I'm wondering before you do, so there wasn't, I, what I really was hoping was that there was a particular campaign or candidate or utterance in a campaign by a candidate that prompted this. But it sounds like that's not the case, am I right? We could make it up, but we are scholars. It wouldn't be the true story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so given that, uh, Aaron, as you guys note, early on in the book, this question operates at a couple different levels. There's the question of whether uh, or what, I should say, things make Massachusetts politics distinctive, what the objective differences that are empirically observable are that we do differently than other places. And then there's the question of whether those differences and their intended or unintended consequences are a force for good or for bad, or maybe both. Let's start with the first category. What are the great big differences between the way politics operates in Massachusetts and the way it works elsewhere that people should have front of mind? Sort of ironic that you're asking me this one because I tend to be the half um, empty person. But what Massachusetts does really well is our institutions. Our institutions, as Gerald argues in some of his chapters, have um, been models for the United States. We do bipartisanship better. Um, we have a functioning government. We do legislative supremacy the way the founders wanted. So our institutional arrangements are really uh, models for the country writ large. And a lot of people in other states wish they had uh, the institutions we did. I had actually wanted you to go negative, but I think I asked the question confusingly. So you've outlined some of the things that, that people can be heartened about in Massachusetts, but I also want to highlight things that maybe are value neutral. We like to elect uh, Republican governors to act as a check on a state house that is completely dominated by Democrats. What are some of the other, and I'll go to Jared for this one, what are some of the other um, things that are simply different for better or worse, whatever we make of, the, right. of them as value propositions. Sure. Well, the interesting thing about that is Massachusetts political culture has a uniqueness to it because it's a real clashing culture. Uh, there's a real clash between a more individualistic sort of old school, uh, you know, competitive politics alongside a very moralistic reform oriented politics. This has always been the sort of broad narrative behind Massachusetts politics. And it really is unique. It's certainly unique 
I mean, it's unique in America for sure. Most uh, other states, all other states have a various forms of, you know, culture clash, but ours has been in existence basically for four centuries and it has only gotten more intense. Can you give me an example of that culture clash in the last say 10 or 20 years? Yeah, sure. Whenever you have, uh, for instance, the uh, progressive uh, Democrats have been working for decades to increase the uh, transparency of the legislature, right? And they're 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 basically the voice of reform, good government reform, uh, transparency, etc. Well, obviously, they haven't made a lot of headway uh, in doing that, and the and they have also not made a lot of headway with the average Massachusetts voter who doesn't seem to be res- doesn't really respond to process reform. Uh, you know, calls. In other words, the average voter is not committed either way. They're they're fr- they're fairly comfortable with the fact that we have uh, you know a very professional transactional uh, you know beacon hill politics. And tell me if I if I'm thinking this through correctly. That I believe gets to another dynamic that you guys uh, say runs throughout our politics, which is the distinction between insiders and outsiders. Am I right to make that connection, Aaron? Go ahead. Most definitely. Insiders, outsiders is something that runs throughout this book, that Democrats have controlled the state house for a long, long time. And yes, occasionally that state for this Republican governors. But what you see is the, you know, the, the white Irish guy, that, that uh, the stronghold of the Democratic Party has meant that it hasn't had to reinvent itself. And so it has kept people who are new to Boston, people who are not white, um, people who didn't weren't born here for a long time feel that they're not included in Massachusetts politics. There has been change. Ayanna Presley is the individual that most people look to. She's not the first try to try to fight against those insiders, but she's one of the first to do so successfully. Um, and so that is a lot of people in Massachusetts politics feel that they could never break through. Uh, it's changing in Boston, but the story is more insider-outsider than it is Democrat versus Republican. You mentioned Ayanna Presley. I also think of Deval Patrick as someone who broke through uh, from a different background than Presley, obviously, but a black man from Chicago who'd come out to Massachusetts with a high school scholarship to go to Milton Academy and ended up coming back and becoming governor. And if I recall correctly, living in a home that he had admired when he was a student at Milton Academy way back in the day. Uh, let's accentuate the negative a little bit more. You talked about people being being kept out or excluded. Uh, Gerald, you talked about a lack of transparency at the State House. Uh, why don't you, Gerald, maybe highlight some other negatives that people should be mindful of when sure. they are uh, instead uh, rushing to, you know, pat ourselves on the back for doing there things. There are a right. lot of the institutional and establishment cultural uh, things that allow Massachusetts politics to be a lot more stable, a lot less uh, vitriolic than other parts of the country and certainly the nation have a very sharp negative to them because they they reinforce the insider-outsider dynamic. So there's a there's a some part of the book in which Aaron uh, does a brilliant job of pointing out that we have a, a Democratic de- uh, establishment. Democratic Party totally dominates in the legislature. And by the way, the Republican governors are usually, uh, you know, have the the at least sort of implicit support of those uh, Democratic leaders on there. But the, the, one of the interesting things about Democratic dominance is it's made it harder for women and minorities to break in, oddly enough, because there was no need for competition. They had no way to be competitive. And Erin has a brilliant uh, part of her chapter that really uses real data to make that 
ironic or paradoxical point. So the fact of the matter is that there's definitely a downside to the stability of our establishment-friendly politics. Uh, I want to roll clips from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker and then get you guys to weigh in on, to my ear, the different ways that they deploy the rhetoric of Massachusetts exceptionalism. Let's start with Mayor Wu and then go to Governor Baker. Today at the polls and over this last year and over generations in this city, Boston has come together to reshape what is possible. We are the city of the first public school in the country, the first public park, the first subway tunnel in the country. We're the city of revolution, civil rights, marriage equality. Boston has always been that city that punches above our weight, where our activism, our community, our joy radiates out into progress across the country. At a time when so much of our public dialogue is designed to destroy trust, to manipulate facts and to pull people apart, we've partnered with one another and shared success and blame along the way. We should continue to focus on building and maintaining positive collaborative relationships because they work for the people we serve and it's what most voters expect from us. They want us to work hard and collaborate the same way they do. Aaron O'Brien, am I right to say that the implications of those different visions of Massachusetts exceptionalism are, are somewhat different in and of themselves? Mm -hmm. I definitely think so. They share, it's better here. We do it better here, and we do it better in politics and policy. This isn't like Texas, swagger, that kind of thing. It's, it's better here, but Michelle Wu is calling on our better angels, our progressive angels. And she's doing so as a perceived outsider, even though she was just elected you know, mayor of Boston. But uh, the radical, the civil rights, the progressive wins, um, the seeing the whole of the person before other states. Charlie Baker is doing it's better here because we get along. There's trust. We don't demonize. But they're both calling on that it's, it's better here. And the third way you can do it is to say, hey, Massachusetts, shape up. It's supposed to be better mm -hmm. here. That can also be political discourse that's used frequently, which we document in the book. Gerald, you got how exceptional. Out. Oh, I see you wanting to hop in. Go ahead. Well, it's, it's also important to point out that that's a Republican governor, right? And he really has no choice but to use that tact. <laughs> that's a good point. Without, without the Democrat uh, Democratic legislature being happy with him, he has. So he, that's a very clear, obvious way for him to say, hey, us insiders. We're, you know, we're, we trust each other. We're going to get along. And it makes perfect sense for a Republican governor to use that tact. A uh, couple of brief questions before we wrap up. How exceptional uh, is Massachusetts in our belief that we are exceptional? Aaron O'Brien, do other states do this too? Are we just one of 50 that has their own narrative? Or are we truly unique in the way we think about ourselves? Of course we're unique and better, Adam. <laughs> but more seriously, um, all states or many states do this. I mentioned Texas. You know, um, everything's better in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. Everybody or most Americans know what the Texas flag looks like. That's not by accidents. But that is not a swagger that is born of government is better. We're unique in our exceptionalism that we make reference to intellectualism. 
that policy as a part of that. Indeed, uh, some of my students got the opportunity <laughs> to read the book. And one of my students, <laughs> Angusam, a really good doctoral student, he pulled a quote from um, Governor DeSantis of Florida um, saying, Florida exceptionalism, and that is the American dream and individualism. So sure, states might sometimes think them of themselves as exceptional, but Massachusetts is unique in so linking that to policy, politics, and government, when in the United States right now, a lot of people don't like politics, policy, and government. Yeah, well, closing question, Gerald, uh, answer this first briefly, and then Aaron, you'll get the last word here. Did you guys approach this issue differently, given that, Gerald, you are, in fact, a Massachusetts native, and Aaron, like me, you came here from the Midwest. Uh, Gerald, why don't you go first and then Aaron? Well, there's there's no question that there's a different approach. I mean, to be honest, this book has been in my head for 40 years, right? I, I've grown up in a political family. My father, my grandfather was a Kennedy appointee. And I mean, so I have sort of been thinking about Massachusetts as exceptional from the perspective of a kid growing up and being politically aware, yeah. for sure. Uh, but there's also, there's not just that basic perspective, there's methodological perspective, historical institutional development versus policy and data, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Aaron, did your, did your outsider status uh, impact the way that you looked at this, do you think? Uh, yeah, 100%. Um, Gerald's being kind here. When we had to write the introduction together and the conclusion, he's a good friend and a great colleague, and we had some barn burners <laughs> on some of the language choice. And it was really born with written the chapters. We agree on so much. But our perspective is different, in part because he studies institutions more. Right. I studied voter access and women in politics. But part of it is um, not being born here. I think I'm going to put a little words in Gerald's mouth if he doesn't mind. But, you know, sort of you don't want people to just talk bad about your family. That's I'm an outsider, and I was talking bad about the family sometime. And I think the book uh, reflects the range of views, and that conversation made the book better. Yeah, yeah, I think it does reflect that range as well. Aaron O'Brien. Gerald Duquette, thank you for being here to talk about this. My pleasure. That book, again, is The Politics of Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Reputation Meets Reality. As for the future of Massachusetts politics, the state Republican convention is now just a couple short weeks away, followed in short order by the state Democratic convention, where my next guest is hoping to win the Democratic endorsement in the race for attorney general. Quentin Pelfrey most recently served as acting general counsel at the U.S. Department of Commerce under Joe Biden. Before that, he was the 2018 Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor and a former state prosecutor. Quentin Pelfrey, good to see you. Let's so nice start. To see you. Thanks for having me. Oh yeah, our our pleasure. Thank you for being here. Let's start with the issue of campaign finance, which you have been stressing over the past few weeks. You want your rivals in the race, Shannon List Reardon and Andrea Campbell, to say we don't want super PACs to play a role in this race. I know Shannon List Reardon has said that she's on board with your uh, request. Have you received a response, a direct response from Andrea Campbell to date? No, we have not. And, you know, we're in a week where we're all reeling from some horrendous decision making by the U.S. Supreme Court. But this issue spotlights another horrendous decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, which is Citizens United. Citizens United opened the floodgate for corporate special interest money really polluting our politics. And we have in Massachusetts seen uh, this open the floodgates in the 2016 referendum ballot around uh, 
uh, charter school expansion. We saw Walton money. We saw Bloomberg money flood into the airwaves. In the 2021 mayor's race, uh, we saw super PACs uh, that were funded by those some ch same charter school interests, but also for-profit healthcare companies, Bain Capital, and developers. Um, and now we're seeing Uber and Lyft uh, flood a ton of money in behind uh, their ballot initiative. And the solution um, that we've come up with um, is this idea um, that we're going to swear off uh, this corporate special interest money. Elizabeth Warren and Scott Brown, on a bipartisan basis in 2012, signed a people's pledge to swear off the special interest money. Uh, in 2013, Ed Markey and Stephen Lynch followed that, uh, uh, that precedent um, and swore off that special interest money. And what we've asked Andrea Campbell and Shannon Liz Reardon to do is just say, look, corporate special interest money shouldn't play a role in the attorney general's race. Now, we've never had a corporate super PAC support a candidate for attorney general in the history of Massachusetts. No other constitutional officer running this year is being supported by a super PAC, not for governor, lieutenant governor, auditor, secretary of state, or, or attorney general, other than uh, this uh, super PAC that is still open that supported Andrea Campbell uh, in the 2021 race. I want to uh, make that sure that... Super PAC Oh, I apologize. I want to make sure that, that we're as clear as, as possible about what you think the implications of that pack working for Andrea Campbell in this race would be. Uh, if my back of the envelope numbers are right, that pack raised, I think, a little more than $2 million last year. They spent about $1.6 million on Andrea Campbell's behalf. Do you believe that receiving assistance from that super PAC would limit her ability to discharge her responsibilities as attorney general because there would be conflicts of interest? I do, absolutely. If you want the attorney general to be the people's lawyer, to be able to stand up against Bain Capital, against for-profit healthcare companies, against uh, charter school supporters, against developers, and really do the job of the people's lawyer, um, of trying to make sure that everyone has access to healthcare and education, a good job, housing, uh, you need to have the AG be independent of those special interest money. And when you're talking about the $1.6 million that was raised uh, by the super PAC in the, in the last 12 months, um, you're talking about the very entities uh, that the AG needs to be independent from. And so I think that it, it does bleed over into the question of the policy views um, and the approach of the candidates in this race. I'm for single payer. Andrea Campbell said that she was against it. I'm for using rent control to rein in housing costs. She said that she was against that. I'm for keeping the cap on charter schools. She says that she's against that. Um, so I do think that there are really significant policy ramifications um, as well as uh, this question of, of the influence. I want to get to some of those policy differences in a moment, but before I do, let's hone in on charter schools just for a second. You, as you've said, do not support raising the cap on charter schools. Andrea Campbell does. At the BC Forum that was held recently, where you and she and Shannon Liss-Ridden appeared, she had a response to your suggestion that charter schools are a force for bad. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. In Boston in particular, there are charter schools. The majority of those students attending those schools are black kids and black students who have been failed by our traditional public schools and are looking for a choice. Quentin Pelfrey, you went to Phillips Exeter for high school. Why should a family that does not have access to that level of education and feels like they're not being served by the educational status quo have the alternatives that charter school proponents say they want to provide? 
So I think racial justice is absolutely at the heart of this question. We are 68 years after Brown versus Board of Education. We still have racially segregated schools and radical differences between the opportunities that are provided to kids in Brockton and Lawrence and parts of Boston um, in Southbridge and the opportunities uh, that are provided to uh, kids in the wealthier, more affluent communities. That is an affront to our constitutional system. We have an obligation as a, a state to provide a free and pro appropriate public education to every child. Um, and the state is failing that obligation. And as uh, the chief civil rights officer of the Commonwealth, uh, the AG really should take on the mantle of uh, trying to disrupt that educational injustice. I just think that the char expanding charter schools goes in the wrong direction. We actually had a conversation about this in Massachusetts in 2016 mm -hmm. that, by the way, was corrupted by the kinds of special interest money I'm talking about, the Waltons, the Bloombergs, uh, a huge amount of for-profit uh, education companies really influenced that conversation. But at the end of the day, the Massachusetts people, I think in their wisdom, decided um, that that was not the solution to educational injustice. Uh, that that picks winners and losers, siphons off resources uh, from uh, the public schools and also undermines collective bargaining. You can't be for uh, unions and collective bargaining some of the time, it undermines teachers. Uh, I don't begrudge any family that decides to get the best education they possibly can for their kids. And I don't begrudge the great educators uh, who go to work every day trying to provide for those kids. But we in Massachusetts have an obligation to cherish our public schools, to invest in our public schools, make sure that every kid uh, has uh, an opportunity in life and where you live and the color of your skin shouldn't determine what kind of an education your kids get. We are failing that obligation in Massachusetts. Expanding charter schools will not solve that. What Got will it. solve that is really taking on this issue. Let's pull back a little bit. What is it about, and you, you mentioned your stances on some policy questions earlier. What is it about your worldview and your experience that, believe, uh, that you believe makes you the best person for this job? Well, I think it's a couple of things. First of all, I'm very proud uh, of the work that I did as the first chief of the healthcare division in the attorney general's office. Um, I founded uh, a new division. The office sued some predatory health insurance companies that were harming Massachusetts residents in that critical time. Uh, I served in the White House under President Barack Obama. On day one of the Biden-Harris administration, uh, I was the acting general counsel, led a team of several hundred lawyers and helped to launch the Build Back Better agenda. And I do think if you look at who's been attorney general in the past, um, they have had the kind of experience uh, that it takes to lead on day one, either as a senior attorney in the AG's office or in a DA's office. And I think uniquely among the three candidates in this race, my experience uh, is prepares me to deliver on day one. But I also want to say that this issue of independence is critically important. We have been uh, very fortunate in Massachusetts to have a people's lawyer who stands up against corporate interests, who stands up against ExxonMobil and the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma. And if we've got a corporate super PAC uh, playing in this race, funding uh, and supporting ads for one of the candidates. That will restrain the ability uh, of, uh, of the AG um, to really stand up and be the people's lawyer in the way that we expect from the AG. You were at uh, your last two gigs, uh, your last two jobs for a fairly brief period of time. You led the digital, pardon me, the International Digital Accountability Council for 10 months. Then you were acting general counsel in the U.S. Commerce Department for seven months. Should that give voters pause? 
Actually, I still run the International Digital Accountability Council. I did oh, go okay. into the Biden Harris administration on day one. Uh, of, I was trying uh, to operate from LinkedIn, which is a, an area I'm not. So you still run international yeah, digital accountability. Right. That's okay. right, I do. Um, um, but uh, but I'm proud of the work that I did in the Biden-Harris administration. Um, I was asked by some of the same people I've worked with in the Obama White House uh, to come back at a critical time. On day one, uh, we were recovering from a really uh, corrupt uh, an immoral administration. And I think that it was very helpful to have someone who had been a senior leader in the Commerce Department under the Obama administration uh, to help set up the first 100-day agenda, to help get the secretary in, the deputy secretary in, get a Senate-confirmed uh, general counsel nominated and confirmed. I'm very proud of the work that we were able to do during that period of time. Um, but I saw it as, as part of the transition, in a sense. It was meant to be an opportunity to help the new administration uh, get set up. And I was very proud of the work that I did at that time. Uh, but Massachusetts is my home, um, and I was very uh, committed to the notion of uh, being in public service here. Um, so I did return to a nonprofit leadership role um, and then uh, started to explore this campaign for attorney general. Um, and I'm really thrilled at the opportunity to be considered uh, for that important role. Uh, you talked about Maura Healy favorably a moment ago, saying that we had a people's lawyer, to use your phrase, taking on these various outside interests, bad actors. Uh, is there anything that you think Maura Healy didn't quite get right in her tenure? So first of all, I, I want to start where you started, which is that I think Maura Healy has been a terrific attorney general. I had the great honor to serve alongside her. I was the chief of the healthcare division at the time that she was the chief of the civil rights division. So some of these things like the buffer zone uh, laws relating to um, uh, reproductive rights access, uh, we had a, a role in, although they were in the lead. So I've had a chance to work alongside her. I've had a chance to lead multi-state cases um, uh, in the attorney general's office. And I think she's done a terrific job using those those tools uh, to fight back again and again against corporate entities and against the corrupt and immoral Trump administration. She's taken, oh, go some, ahead. Go ahead, sorry, I, I, I think, think I stepped in right when you were gonna shift. No, you're fine. I think there's some opportunities now that Trump is not in the White House to shift our focus to the really big challenges we face here in Massachusetts on healthcare, on education, on jobs, uh, on reproductive rights, uh, on workers' rights, on LGBTQ rights. I think that there is an opportunity uh, to refocus some of our energy. That's not a criticism of Maura Healy. It's just a feature of uh, what's at the front of our agenda over the next few years. Last question for you uh, on the same theme. She's taken some criticism from state Republicans, but also from the Boston Globe editorial page for not doing enough to target political corruption in Massachusetts, especially when it comes to elected public officials, most of whom are Democrats. Um, do you think that that criticism has merit? You've got about 20 seconds. I, I do think that we can do more uh, to stand up to a culture in on Beacon Hill um, that is not transparent, that is not democratic. Um, I think the AG should do a better job of overseeing the state police, of overseeing local elected officials, and of uh, holding Beacon Hill to account uh, and living up to its democratic norms. Quentin Pelfrey, thank you for being here and good luck on the trail. Thanks so much for having me. That is gonna do it for tonight. Before we go though, a few quick reminders. First, in addition to watching us on TV or on the GBH News YouTube channel, you can also get Talking Politics as a podcast wherever you do your podcast listening. Be sure to also subscribe to the GBH News Politics newsletter if you haven't already. You can get it at gbh.org slash newsletters. And as always, please keep telling us what you think about conversations we've already had, topics we should tackle in the future, or guests you'd like to see on the show. We're online 
at gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics. We're on email at talkingpolitics at wgbh.org, or you can find me on Twitter. I am at Riley Adam. Thanks again, and good night.